Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. My name's Pitt, and your ass ain't talking your way out of this shit. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, you're a Kantian. Don't you know that it's morally wrong for you to sexually objectify me? <laughs> That's wishful thinking on so many grounds. I'm Dave Bizarre from Cornell University. Um, no, when I make love to you, it's really just to your soul. Honestly, that's what I thought. It's but just now out it's of like, pure duty. It's yeah. out of pure duty. It's the ultimate Kantian lovemaking. <laughs> You're using me as a mere means to your perverted ends. It's only naughty if you're Kantian. Like, if, you know? Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> it can't be hot it's, if you think it's totally okay to. That's right. To do. No, Kant has made. Finally, we have someone that makes sex hot. <laughs> this is this is why it's so amazing that you're such a big fan of him. Is he goes after all your babies, <laughs> masturbating, s- sexual desire. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's just hotter that way. It's, it's, you know, all these people raised in like these hippie permissive families where like it's okay to have sex with whoever you want as long as you respect them. Like, how do you get pleasure out of that when you don't think it's totally wrong and and sh- have shame and guilt afterwards? Like, yeah. uh, to me, it's like a ramping up the pleasure of the sexual encounter to know that you're going to feel like shit afterwards to know that you'll have violated the second formulation (laughs) of the categorical imperative i mean i'm just i may need Um, a few minutes actually now (laughs) so go go do guilty masturbation and tell me how wonderful it is (laughs) all right now that we're back (laughs) good at it (laughs) oh man i feel so relaxed right now (laughs) that was incredible so um we are referring this thing that both allowed us to individually gratify ourselves um is a the latest the latest in a series of eon that magazine eon um philosophy like trolling clickbait like just it's almost like like fate the fake news of philosophy or it's like a boring buzzfeed the click yeah or like right buzzfeed <laughs> i don't even totally believe that they're written by different people because they all have the same structure you you take something natural you take something like totally unobjectionable in every way one about like having children like having your own children rather than randomly distributing children and then there's another one about democracy being bad another one about about this right sexual objectification so this one says that what what's the title of it why 
why sexual desire is objectifying. And hence. And hence Morley Raw. <laughs> and then the, the cover art is uh, still of a nude model from the 1800s. Yeah, in fact, um, we posted this on Facebook. And yeah, it's, she's, you know, you, you sometimes think of these mo- these models from that period in history, 1839, as maybe... Mm-hmm. You know, like not quite meeting it's, it's our not up to the standard, the bo- not to the Cosmo standards. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. She, um, she looks yeah, no, fine. The the intent was totally to arouse and then make us feel really, really crappy for getting aroused. I, I um, so I felt crappy reading it for sure, but but not not for the reasons he intended. <laughs> right. I I posted Facebook. I tweeted it, making fun of it. But it's like that's what they want. Like any of these, we're that's playing what, into their hands. We're, yeah. pl- we're doing exactly what they want. But here's the thing. Okay, I don't know if this author knows that he's doing this, like for Eon's trolling purposes. So, do you like, are you positive that this is a separate author from the other people that have been <laughs> writing it? You don't think they just use different names? I mean, if they did, they did, they <laughs> went out of their way to like actually create a whole. Uh, <laughs> like web history of this guy's work i I totally looked him up and so (laughs) so his name is raj raja halwani yeah um and he actually got his phd in philosophy from syracuse university and he's like into the philosophy of sex and love but in the most unsexy of ways that you can imagine (laughs) he's the author of philosophy of love sex and marriage 2010 i can you imagine reading his whole book um, but anyway, let's talk about how you played right into their hands and tweeted it and Facebooked it and, and now we're talking about yeah, it. Yeah, and I um, almost got annoyed like people like responded angrily towards it and I'm like, no, that but like what did I expect? <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, why did exactly. I why did I if I didn't want that, why would I post links to it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I I guess we should just summarize the the actual argument. Um but it's ridiculous. And and it you rests on because you're the yeah. So, I mean, the the, only, the argument is that it is intrinsically true, like it is just true of sexual desire that it requires objectification, like that's part one of the syllogism. <laughs> objectification is like treating someone as an object is morally wrong, which is therefore uh, sex is morally wrong. Yeah, because yeah. you're violating the. Second formulation right. of the categorical <laughs> imperative, which prohibits using somebody as a mere means. But also, it, he's saying that sex doesn't just make you objectify your partner, it makes you objectify <laughs> yourself. Objectify yourself. He yeah. says, when I am in the grip of sexual desire, so hold that image, I also allow another person to reduce me to my body, to use me as a tool. Kant you, you saw tool, this pro- <laughs> process of self-objectification as an equally, if not more, <laughs> serious moral problem than objectification directed outwards. I have duties t- to others to promote their happiness by letting himself, let, letting him being used as a as a sexual tool. But right. I but I also have a duty to morally perfect myself, allowing myself to be objectified opposes this precept. According, according to, yeah, according to Kant, and this this gets him out of the you know the potential retort that if somebody is desiring of of 
you to make them into an object, then they wouldn't be wrong. He's like, no, 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 because they're there. They are actually harming themselves, and and we can't. And <laughs> allowing you to harm yourself, or yeah. all right. This is all now that I'm reading this. When I'm in the grip, use me as a tool. It all just sounds like veiled references. See, I, I, like I don't believe this is real. Listen to this. And with no desire, there is no objectification. Not even love can fix it. When the desire is high, when the sexual act is in full swing, my beloved is a piece of flesh. Though love does lead to occasional cuddling, which is nice. Like I just don't believe that that he wrote that. <laughs> it's. A- <laughs> You wonder about like sort of the learning history, like the the contingencies in his in his environment of uh, environment of reward and punishment that led to the writing of that paragraph. <laughs> no, like, I just think that this is it's not like an algorithm that writes these, but they all have the same sort of structure too. It's like you put this ludicrous argument, and then. You consider an objection, which is the farthest thing from the objection that any sensible person would <laughs> exactly. have. But really, what's the big deal? That's the objection. Like, you just put forth this completely ludicrous argument, and your objection is, okay, you're right. You've convinced me that it's wrong, but really, come on, what's the big deal? No, that's right, not the on. objection. Worse <laughs> well, things you know. have happened and will happen. That's the objection to this ridiculous argument. Every single article has that structure of they consider some objection that like concedes <laughs> the main force of their argument but pushes back on the magnitude of the conclusion or something like that it's yeah just so just yeah no no you're right it follows the structure of like argument and like you know uh, imagined audience raising these these uh it's in some sense good writing should be like it's a parody of good writing where it's like you might think to yourself right. surely david pizarro is wrong because you know he sticks gerbils up his ass no i wasn't thinking that at all like that's <laughs> not why i think he's wrong like and, and he, the way that he just takes like the kantian view of of objectification as being morally wrong he just takes that as like just you know clearly this is right. such an intuitively right <laughs> view um, so your objection isn't even to Kant. It's like, no, well, maybe despite the true wisdom of Kant, it could still be good to have sex. Nope. And he says, there's a snag. The capacity to reason is what makes people ends in themselves worthy of moral respect, according to Kant. And what's objectifying about sexual desire, which is a new argument that he's raising here, is its ability to numb a person to reason, both in themselves and in others. Its power is such that it makes our reason its servant. Our rationality becomes the means to satisfy its goals. It has been the downfall of kings and leaders, but not queens. The ruination of relationships, the seedbed <laughs> of queens. lies in the pursuit of getting laid. Um, yeah, that, it's, like, me too. I love atonal music. It's like they, they put this uh, little bits of like alleged comedy in it. Like I, I'm telling you that this is, this is all the so, same person. First of all, all motivation and some like the desire to eat. Uh, you know, I guess what I'm just mad is that he scooped the gist of my article why it's wrong to poop. Right. Because you can make all of these same <laughs> these same arguments. You know, when you when you really want to poop, it's like reason goes out the window. It's <laughs> yeah. like well, I will lie and say that I love atonal music if I really have to poop. You really have to take a <laughs> shit and it's just <laughs> So he says, is it possible to have sex without objectification? Of course. Prostitutes do it all the time. So do many long-term couples. It's like he's missed what sex like between two loving people really yeah. is about. It's like I couldn't help but but read more about his psychology yeah. than about what sex is. It's like he got it wrong, and it doesn't surprise me that 
in a in a piece that seems like it's it's sort of passing itself off as self-aware you know with these little asides the idea that the only kind of sex that's okay is with prostitutes you know when i had sex with my wife that's that's wrong but i like try to make up for it by having sex with a prostitute and i'll just say when you have sex with your life it's not that you lose your power to reason it's more like it doesn't change. You never really have that much. You're never really good at it. So I don't think I can a do. I can do modest tonins, just not modest poems. <laughs> Which card do I need to turn over to figure out? I, d- if I lose all my Bayesian um, powers. You're you're just a dumb frequentist. Like when you're. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you think Linda is a feminist and a bank teller all the time, <laughs> right? That's, um, that's more common. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what we should have said what we're doing our episode on the real oh, yeah. substance. Why don't, you, why don't you go ahead? And so it say. is, um, and we will talk about this in the second segment. Um, it's a paper, so we're going but back to some meat and potatoes. Very bad wizard. It's been a while since we've. I guess Paul Russell's paper which was also about free will, now that I think about it. It's almost as if I taught a grad seminar. (laughs) You know what's funny is that if I bring up a topic that we raised in, like, 2011, you're like, we've done that already. (laughs) And, like, here we are. It's like more Strassonian shit every week. (laughs) Anyway, we're doing a paper on on Strassen and and free will, but but this is by Victoria McGeer, philosopher at Princeton, and... um, it's it's certainly a different kind of paper. It's really not as much on on free will. In uh, it's more focused on the ways in which our beliefs about free will might affect our institutions and um, the way we relate to each other as a moral community. So it's called co-reactive. It's co- co-reactive attitudes and the, and the making of moral community. Yes. Um, so we'll talk about that after a break. Do we have anything more to say about? Yeah, you know, I was going to say really quickly that um, I actually consider it a uh, a win for philosophy that it is now capable of trolling at the same level as like other uh, sort of foundations of society. You know, you have like yeah, we've had we've had other kinds of trolling for so long. Uh, that philosophy has finally moved up in the world that it can actually troll people. I mean, I guess you uh, guys have had this for a while. You had your psychologist like, has been trolling people forever. Like yeah. you know, like back to the we're going back to the behaviorists. Like you know, to, to treat your child like a pigeon and everything will be all right. Who is that guy? He 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 had a blog on psychology today. Uh, he was an evolutionary psychologist. He was Japanese. And, oh yeah, Satoshi. Yeah. Um, and yeah. finally got in trouble for like something that seemed racist or something. Yeah, I know Satoshi. He he did this unfortunate thing where he he tried to analyze data on on attractiveness ratings, and he made some claims basically about like black women being objectively less attractive. <laughs> like I think he actually used the word objectively. <laughs> I don't think you know what that means. It was just a finding that people are are racist. It was a finding that he was racist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We polled myself a whole bunch of times, and we found and we found that black women. Are <laughs> Yeah, it was really. This is. I, I, he probably never took a, a sort of pro- professional seminar on like how how to be, how to talk to the press, how, um, how to be PC, <laughs> how to not trigger people, in their safe spaces. 
Yeah. So like if we had been doing the podcast when he was in his heyday, like that that would have been some great fodder. We could have had him on. He was here at Cornell for a bit. Really? We could have just yeah, he was visiting professor. He had one about Um, Michael Phelps like proving that he was right because he was with some like stripper or something like <laughs> that proves that he was right about evolutionary psychology I mean, it was with friends like that evolutionary psychology need, really truly <laughs> needs needs no enemies um, <laughs> sorry if you're listening satoshi <laughs> and rob rob Sika, <laughs> the guardian of the evolutionary the, psychology yeah you know they've yeah. been like it's like they have a new pr person they're like trump three weeks before the election where he didn't really say shit and you know, I mean, like it sounds like you're. It sounds like you don't believe in evolution. I, I so. <laughs> I actually have no big serious issue with evolutionary psychology. It's just that, like, it's amazing how they've been <laughs> you not might have evolved from in, a monkey. In, they, they, they've been out of the news lately. Yeah, there's 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 more pressing matter. <laughs> I guess. All right. All right. Let's take a break, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, before we get to talking about Victoria McGear's paper on co-reactive attitudes, um, we'd just like to take a moment to thank everybody for their support. Uh, it, it's, again, I guess we say the same thing every time, but we really, truly appreciate all of the emails. We got a lot of good, just good response from Paul Paul Bloom's appearance. That was actually really fun. A lot um, of people agree with me about Ex Machina. No, like two people, no. and they're just wrong. They're just wrong. You're- I mean, the a hundred percent of the people that emailed about that <laughs> agree with me. Let's not talk about denominators. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that it is true that the one or two people who bothered to reach out, it, it's it's because why would you reach out if you have the common sense? You. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's like me writing an article about sex not being morally wrong. <laughs> like, who would read that? <laughs> As always, I am the real feminist. <laughs> um, so thank you all for, for your emails um, and for your support. Um, if you w- would like to contact us, we always appreciate your emails, your tweets, your Facebook messages. You can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Uh, on our website, verybadwizards.fireside.fm, uh, there's a contact page there if you want to uh, use that. Tweet us at verybadwizards, at tamler, at peas. You can help support us in more tangible ways, which we really appreciate, uh, by going to our Patreon website. You can either click through the donate uh, button on our page or just go to uh, 
patreon.com slash raybadwizards and just give us even a even a buck per episode is really making a, a big difference um or you can click on especially now the amazon we should have said this before the amazon uh link affiliate link where you can purchase things as you would normally but just go through the very bad wizards affiliate link yeah. and we get a little piece of, of if you, we can if buy our buying, daughters nice things if you're buying textbooks if you're buying late christmas presents um yeah. just bookmark it that's what i do um yeah so that i can remember that and I itunes reviews yeah I, and yes. itunes we, we we really love those um we've gotten some good ones too uh so, yes, thank you, everybody. We really appreciate hearing from you, and we really appreciate your support. And we're just doing these, I mean, this is episode 105. It just keeps going. Keeps going. I, you know, I was talking to somebody about, about like, nobody can believe when I say, four, you know, for over four years now. <laughs> but, um, okay, so today we are talking about this paper by Victoria McGeer, who is one of the... One of the more interesting and and coolest philosophers out there. I got a chance to hang out with her a bit in, at a conference in New Orleans. She is also married to Philip Pettit. They are kind of a philosophy power couple, but the nicest philosophy power couple you can imagine. And they're both professors at Princeton University. So this paper, Co-Reactive Attitudes and the Making of Moral Community, it starts out defending a Strassonian view of blaming attitudes and practices, a Strassonian view of holding responsible, as Strassen articulated in the best paper of all time, Freedom and Resentment. She then discusses how damaging it can be to our institutions of punishment, especially to ignore Strassen's insights. And in this section of the paper, she takes a few shots at our old friend, Josh Green, our old friend and podcast dodger, Josh Green (laughs) and Jonathan Cohen, and their paper for the law of neuroscience. For the law, for... Says nothing and everything. Shows nothing. Says nothing. Yeah, whatever. So she takes a a few shots, and I think sort of interesting and I would say legitimate shots at that paper, even though I used to fully be on board with their argument there. And then you did, God. Yeah, back back when I was a skeptic, back when I was like just an innocent. The, the early summers early <laughs> summers yes two, that's not that's 2007 I, I think I started getting more compatibilistic before I officially would admit it but um, you lost you lost your faith but I was the hardest of hard determinists I know you, you really milk that as like some somehow evidence of your responsiveness to reason when it's just you know well it's just it's, evidence that like it's not that I don't understand Sam Harris followers tweets about how like, <laughs> yeah, like I get, get the argument. Trust you me. You don't get it. You yeah. don't get it. You're but right. I agree. It's, okay. it's a little bit of a rhetorical like kind of <laughs> slimy move to be like, no, I used to believe that back when I was stupid. Although I was like 40 still or 35 or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I guess 35. Anyway, the last part of the paper, she argues that instead of defending the crude kind of consequentialism or utilitarian 
that some free will skeptics defend, they think that's a natural result of their theory, that in fact, the approach to punishment that best reflects the Strassonian understanding of the reactive attitudes is, wait for it, restorative justice. (laughs) So, Dave, you love Strassen, you love freedom and resentment, but you hate restorative justice even more than you hate musicals and Jews. Is your love for Strassen great enough to finally bring you around to the restorative revolution? (laughs) So, uh, I do love Strassen. I do love me some Jews even when they (laughs) refuse to follow the traditions of America and put a (laughs) Christmas tree in their house. (laughs) I I don't understand why you want me to like put Nazi imagery in my house. (laughs) If if you don't want your daughter to have the joy that Christian kids have. (laughs) No, no, I love Strassen. I actually love the way that she she presents this argument and her her juxtaposition of both the Green and Cohen um, paper and the the paper by the other guy in the same issue. Good now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is which is a, a response to Green and Cohen, yet nonetheless seems to to um, make similar assumptions and, and Greer thinks, well, McGeer thinks similar errors. Um, I, I really like it all. I think that here's where I will depart. I, the, the part on restorative justice, I think, is the least fleshed out. And in fact, I don't know, and we can talk about this, but I'm not sure that, that a Strassonian view really has anything to say about restorative justice. Um, she sort of admits that this is just, you know, this is suggestive more than decisive. Um, but let's get there because I actually, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this paper is I've always sensed a connection between these two loves of my life <laughs> philosophically. <laughs> I think this was an interesting way of showing how they're connected so um so i do want to talk about that but we should talk about the two theses that she attributes to strassen first so she says strassen is defending two separate but related views the metaphysical non-commitment thesis which is just that when we hold responsible and we blame people and we resent them we're not presupposing anything fancy about their agency metaphysically whether determinism is true is irrelevant to to we're not making any metaphysical assumptions period Um, not just metaphysical assumptions that have to do with determinism but any metaphysical assumptions period we are according to her reading of strassen making certain assumptions and we'll talk about that in in a, a second the 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 second thesis that she defends is the metaphysical corruption thesis well does she defend it i mean well, she says she, this is what strassen yes, says right but i think yeah. she does defend it because this is what she thinks green and cohen and goodnow are are falling prey to this is the view that if we start assuming that that libertarian free will is necessary for holding responsible and resenting people justly or appropriately and blaming them, then this will damage the way we relate to each other and 
also has the potential to damage the way we approach certain institutions. If we make the mistake of ignoring the truth of the first thesis, the metaphysical non-commitment thesis. So if we start imagining, like Sam Harris does, like old me used to, like or younger me used to, uh, <laughs> that libertarian free will is required for moral responsibility, this will hurt our relationships with each other, which is, I think, more what Strawson was focused on, but then, um, but also has the potential to erode the potential of certain institutions um, at the level of policy or the level of the state, including our criminal justice, our approach to criminal justice. Right. And that's what leads to the discussion of Green and Cohen and then ultimately to restorative justice. So let's talk about these two theses. But I wanted to say uh, really quickly, though, that, that we should at least give a, a little bit of a, of a description of what Strawson means by reactive attitudes, um, even yes. though we've talked about it many times. Maybe sure. somebody's listening for Absolutely. the first time. Yeah. Um, and so on Strawson's view, the reactive attitudes are those, it's, it's a particular way of responding to people who have, who have acted immorally um, that involve kind of those just human reactions to wrongdoing when you think an agent did it. So anger, blame, uh, resentment, all, all those attitudes that come along uh, with treating somebody as if they are an agent, an intentional being who, who um, harmed you. So Stra Strawson thinks this is just how humans are built we it's very hard for us to give up this way of treating other human beings and that these are very important attitudes that we have they guide our moral practices um and we can suspend them in fact he thinks that we ought to suspend them in some cases where well uh, yeah, but, but, yeah. but i don't think he believes that but we can talk about that in a second but he says we certainly do suspend them sometimes yeah, right um, when when we encounter agents who, well, when we encounter individuals who don't seem to possess a certain kind of agency, um, or if we learn that they don't, like people who are suffering from certain kinds of mental illness, um, we, we can choose to say, well, I, I may have otherwise been angry with somebody who had harmed me, but this person is suffering from delusions. And, yeah. so, and, and we can do this. He gives a bunch of different categories of people. We tend to take the objective attitudes towards so small children. The although, objective attitude yeah. meaning that you don't, you don't, you don't treat them as, as agents, moral agents. You don't resent them. Like they can, even if they harm you, you'll, you won't be angry about it. You might be frustrated or disappointed but you won't be angry at them you won't resent them you won't be right. you won't feel indignation when they do it to somebody else so it's really about the kind it's it's different ways of responding uh, it's different sorts of emotions that you have towards these people and i think we do have some sort of power over whether we want to adopt this he even says sometimes we just take it towards ordinary agents Ordinary people, just because to as as a kind of temporary relief from the strains of human involvement. So you you can get so I, I think this is a really interesting point, and there's a paper I want to discuss at some point down the line is by Michelle Mason, who 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 talks about this in great detail. But he does have this addition, which is sort of curious that you know you can be involved with someone in a very emotional relationship and then the stress of of that relationship becomes so great 
because of how, you know, how angry you get when they treat you poorly, that at a certain point you can just take decide, okay, you know what? I'm they're cut off from this range of feelings. I am just going to take a step back and treat them like a thing, like treat them like it's like he's in my mind about <clears throat> my relationship with you. Right. It's like, like <laughs> I have to do this with you a lot. Like, like I, I go back to like, go back to 2007. How would you have thought of him then? You know, like, and I get this very Zen sort of, that's why I'm never, I never get mad or I never yell. So there's all sorts of reasons why, but most likely it's because we think the person is incapacitated in certain ways like they're sociopaths or they're... uh, Right. Here's why I jumped on you when you said he thinks we ought to take the objective attitude or that it's... Some people will say that he thinks it's rational to take the objective attitude towards people who have certain mental deficits or conditions or, you know, someone with severe autism or somebody who's under great, great temporary strain. He never says anything like that. He doesn't say anything bordering on it when it's rational to take the objective attitude or when we ought to take the objective attitude he's really keeps it fairly descriptive he's just describing our practices and the ways we relate to each other how mcgear interprets strawson is saying the kinds of people who we think it's appropriate to engage reactively to so feel resentment feel anger blame hold responsible are the kinds of people who are capable of receiving the message and as part of this dynamic process that allows us to get along as uh, as a kind of moral community. So this is, and this is why I, I kind of want to talk about this first point, because I, I think that, that, and maybe I liked it because it does, pushing a particular view of what the reactive attitudes are, and she says... She, she is mounting an argument for that they are tracking something. And I think that's critically important, that, that the reactive attitudes are tracking what we view as certain capacities. Um, now, it could just be descriptively, and that's the only way in which, which I mean this. Like, but merely that at a descriptive, in a descriptive sense, when we react this way, and I think the reason I like this is because it's very easy to talk about the reactive attitudes like anger and blame in a kind of dumb way. Like um, to say, you know, well, this is just is sort of Green and Cohen say this is just our evolutionary heritage. We get mad when we we get treated unfairly, and this is um, you know, we can't shake system, it. System one, you can't yeah. shake it. Yeah. It's a dumb process, something to be overcome. But I think that 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 McGear's view is more closely aligned with how these emotions actually work. That that they are both tracking features of the mental state of the the person who acted that you believe so the, all of the things that gave rise to you know you doing something Tamler that pisses me off i i have some view of of your agency being involved your choices not metaphysical but but just psychological and um and also i think her central point they are essentially making a claim about how you will respond to those reactive attitudes. Because I communicate them, you know, not strategically or explicitly, but part of what it means to express my disapproval is a belief somehow that my disapproval will have, will give you a certain reaction. You'll be responsive to me saying, hey, I don't think that that was a nice thing to do or it was fair or whatever. 
And I like that because in, it is true that in the absence of that, if I really <clears throat> have, you know, if I have no real explicit belief that it might do anything to you, then I would call it an error that I'm overgeneralizing. Like when I kick a vending machine and get mad, you yeah. know, stupid vending machine. Uh, there I'm just like, okay, my reactive attitude is sort of just an overextension. It's, I guess what I'm saying is it's a more, it's, it's a, a more cognitive view of emotions and one that, that I think I've tried to defend, but she just says it better than I've been able to say it. I mean, we get into these p- pissy fights sometimes over texts, <laughs> usually, um, which is yeah. uh, it's just stupid. I don't know why we do that, but it's probably the, it's the only way we fight. But it's over text. like, and, and it's funny because she gives this trajectory in the form of a very form of a diagram with a bunch of smiley faces and angry faces. It looks like and an like, emoji diagram before emoji were really popular, right? And it's actually not, it doesn't, it's not really explained what each of these things signify. It took like my class of, you know, MA students and me like half an hour to try to decode this figure. Um, We'll we'll post this on the website. You should look at this. But the basic idea is that there is this whole trajectory how we relate to each other in groups and communities and in our relationships if if a person is angry, then a person might at first sort of deny that they did anything wrong, and then there'll be more anger, and then maybe a bystander will come in and sort of take the side of the person who's angry, and that'll make the person who um, did the thing feel remorse and feel guilt and ultimately mm-hmm. lead to an apology um on one side or both it's like our text exchanges always end up with you and i both apologizing to each other, <laughs> yeah. right and it's like it, it's like that's the whole you never point. give me a wilty flower though like the uh the figure <laughs> one <laughs> no i was saving that for when i really fu- do, like really fuck you over like that that's when the wilty flower comes out you can't waste it you can't burn it you know so really what you're doing when you're holding responsible is communicating that you think you were wronged and there's this kind of expectation that the person will either defend themselves or apologize or acknowledge that what they did was wrong and that you shouldn't be treated that way when yeah, other people are involved, that can be reinforced. And so certain norms get reinforced and integrated throughout the community through these exchanges. And it's just that simple. It's no, There's no, oh, but you were a self-caused, you know, agent yeah, in some yeah. impossible so, way. It's just, no, you fucked me over. And yeah. Right. That's uh, so. That's that's exactly what like what I, I like about this. I mean, it it is psychologically just um, uh, um, much more accurate. I mean, people don't they just don't think about libertarian metaphysics when when they're engaged in this sort of thing, but they do. They are using these reactions both as judgment of previous, uh, you know, of the behavior that you just elicited, and as an appeal like it's calling out to somebody saying hey i hope i hope that you realize that when i express my disapproval it's it's in the hopes of you responding and i it's like not that just disapproval it's like anger like no yeah, yeah. Ang- anger all, all of yeah. those things that come that come with expressing that you 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 really did something wrong and it's not it, it's 
it, the reaction that you could get, as she says, is defensiveness, saying, like, I didn't do that. But that itself would express, yes, I'm a moral agent. If I had really done what you say I did, that would be a wrong. You know, you are pulling, you're pulling those responses from them. Yeah. It might be an apology. It might just be more anger and, and saying that I've been falsely accused. What it wouldn't be if it weren't a, a, a normal human agent would just be, like, nothing or just i don't know what you're talking about leave me alone yeah. no you're trying to elicit that hey we're all engaging in these same practices in a way that we have to respect each other as you know when i'm harmed i get angry when you're harmed you get angry we it, rem it makes me think of these interactions are like when we talk about evolution and cooperation and the need to have these norms of cooperation and why punishment would have evolved um it's easy to lose sight of the psychology or, or describe the psychology as simply, you know, reciprocity and whatever aversion to unfairness. But the, this is the user interface that evolution gave us. Yeah. Right. So it may be that we evolved all of these for all, all these reasons, right, um, due to natural selection. But the way in which we actually respond to each other this is this is the the gooey this is this is how we go about uh, interacting with each other in a more in a moral sense a couple of quotes to sort of sum up what we've been this this part of the discussion she says the point is just that we reserve our reactive responses for those whom we take to be capable of understanding what we are communicating through our reactive attitudes and are capable of responding appropriately so we think they're capable of understanding the message that we're communicating which is that they're capable of understanding that and they're capable of responding appropriately through you know a apology or it could be defensiveness at first but right. what she says about defensiveness is usually that's an unstable state when one side is being defensive and anybody who's been in a fight with like your your wife or husband or like someone you're in a long-term relation relationship with knows that this can happen right but like it's very uncomfortable when there's not this normative agreement she says that that we we're very uncomfortable with normative disagreement and so we are very motivated to move towards some sort of res resolution and if we can't that feels really, really bad. It right. the thing, even though it's so hard, like some like apologizing and just admitting that you were wrong is a much better feeling than thinking that you were right, but also knowing that somebody's mad at you. Um, yeah. So but you know, this is an interesting point. I I was I highlighted that where she says moral morally capable agents have a basic human need to reach agreement on the normative significance of what they do to one another, and I feel it. I have the same intuition, but I don't know if there's any good research at least none i can think of that directly questions that but but i do catch the intuition that it is far more unsatisfying to have someone not understand why i'm upset with them than it would be for them to say that i'm just wrong that they didn't do what i said they did right yeah it is it's like wait a second you're you're not even playing the game if you don't even tell me like if i am right about all of the facts and you don't think that there was something that was done poorly like or done wrong to me then i don't then I, what do we like what do we have left and then at that point like you start thinking maybe take the objective attitude like maybe this is not this is no longer the kind of relationship that's going to work out for yep. for me that's um, that's the only way you can get out of that sanely yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> if you've ever dealt with anybody who has dementia you mm -hmm. 
I, my dad had this a little bit before he died um, in the last last months, maybe last year. And it wasn't a hundred percent, and so and he so so we could react to each other normally. But I noticed that when I would get really mad and fly off the handle, which you tend to do when it's your own parent sometimes, like mm-hmm. it just wasn't registering in the normal way, you know? Yep. And yep. Wh- what I think happens in those cases is the person has lost the capacity to really understand why you're upset or what they've de- why you would take what they've done to you why would they would take that personally and um no it's it's actually really confusing um it's really you know, confusing to, yeah. to get the metaphor of a user interface it's like there's a there really is like a bug in the system and and you express this sort of reaction and and they're confused and right? you're sometimes confused maybe they too, even forget like- they, yeah. they don't they don't realize what they said um, and yeah it's totally confusing for you and you're like oh, okay like I have to just consistently remind myself that they don't they don't have the capacity to but the same thing happened to my grandmother where it's like clearly at some point you know the, the brain is getting just so so changed at the end there that she would just say shit you know she'd be like yeah you're fat or whatever you know and you're like god damn that's not nice <laughs> but um, you, you, you there's where you stop fighting the battle that you would have with any other human being who had, who had said rude shit, you know? But then the flip side of this is it's like you're paying a kind of compliment to somebody when you get angry at them or when you resent them. She says, when we resent somebody or express anger, or it, it says to the recipients that we don't despair of them as moral agents. Indeed, that we hold them accountable to an ideal of moral agency because we think them capable of living up to that ideal. So reactive attitudes communicate a positive message, even in their most negative guise, even in the guise of anger, resentment, and indignation. The fact that we express them says to the recipients that we see them as individuals who are capable of understanding and living up to the norms that make for moral community. That is something I've been interested in lately, is the kind of compliment you pay to somebody when you resent them and the kind of insult that you pay them when you can't you don't even get angry when they fuck you over that's like yeah they're yeah, beneath you like beneath you caring about them at at a certain point uh yeah i to- i totally agree I-, I suspect with no data at all just actually probably from my own watching of movies but i suspect that that one reason that the insanity defense isn't widely used is because um people um, view themselves as agents and to say that you weren't an agent is actually qu- like quite a difficult thing to do like uh, you know in, in some cases you'd just rather be dealt the consequences than than pretend like you had no say in what you did well this um, was like the downfall of the utilitarian theory of punishment which is that people started to like <laughs> ev- like criminals didn't want to be treated as like sick individuals that just need to, to be cured they wanted to be respected, and really, it was more that the sort of popular uh, sentiment was rebelling against that conception. 
of people. When I, yeah, and whenever I flirt with consequentialism, it always really messes up my BDSM because I'm like, no, I'm a bad little boy. I deserve to be spanked. Right. And then I'm like, wait, no, I don't actually. It's, no, actually right, it's my, not sexy anymore. It actually <laughs> contributes to the net ha- happiness of the world. <laughs> and it's in my long-term enlightenment self-interest. I, I, I no longer married. Ball gag. Ball gag. <laughs> there was a the director of graduate studies when I got to school. I don't know that movie. Um, yeah, <laughs> so it's one of Tarantino's early films. Yeah, okay. um, he uh, he gave sort of a, a talk to I think it was a class that most of us were in, and he said, um, you know, a lot of you are worried about um, you know you're brand new. You're worried about whether you're going to make it out of this program. He said, and he says. We are rooting for everybody who enters this program to leave here with a PhD. We think that you can do it or we wouldn't have accepted you. And, and then he goes, and in fact, if you don't, it's our fault. <laughs> that right there was incredibly, like, I didn't know, I, I couldn't put my finger on it at the time. It's incredibly patronizing. Yeah. <laughs> like... If you suck, you suck so much that you're not even be, you're not even worthy of like the blame. Um, it was just our fault for having accepted somebody so whack. That that sounds like some like somebody with who lacks social skills. <laughs> like, yeah, no, no, no shit. <laughs> which you know sort of plagues our field. And yeah, uh, exactly. Our our profession is not great exemplars of like reactive <laughs> a- attitudes functioning. Pr- properly and appropriately can we yeah, talk about Strauss, Strassen talked about passive aggressiveness <laughs> very much <laughs> is that a reactive attitude yeah can we talk about this metaphysical corruption she says to my mind there's a far more significant worry lurking in the shadows of various remarks that Strassen makes one that he never explicitly develops but which ought to command more attention it is that certain practical dangers are likely to flow from falling prey to a mistaken belief that metaphysical theses are relevant to the justification of our practices of holding responsible. Dangers that threaten the very practices themselves. And then a little further down, she says, in my view, the deeper significance of Strassen's work is to show that these concepts and practices, blaming, praising, holding responsible, may be vulnerable to damage and distortion precisely as a consequence of seeking to square them with a metaphysical picture of human choice. Hence, such metaphysical inclinations are important to nip in the bud before they can flower into noxious, though possibly seductive, practical recommendations so that's the bridge into her criticisms of josh green and you know the idea is that you start thinking that libertarian free will is necessary for moral responsibility you're wrong about that you're wrong that people are even presuming that but it's a weird argument actually what she's making but once you start mistakenly believing that it starts to almost come true that that these practices become distorted and people lose faith in them and they can't work their normal magic in, in what she calls moral scaffolding in helping us reinforce the norms that help us relate to each other yeah you know and the structure of the argument can be made for other institutions in which you've sort of hinged all of morality. So you could say, for instance, well, um, the only reason that we have for acting morally or caring about, about others is because God says so. The minute that you stop believing in God, 
then it just follows that all of a sudden you question all of these practices. Right. And I think her argument is that it's it was a mistake to begin with to hinge it all on this sort of one-legged stool of, of libertarian free will because you take that leg off and, and you just fall flat on your ass. That's a good analogy. Yeah, exactly. So for a person who believes it, once they lose their faith in God, they're going to lose their faith in certain moral practices that right. didn't depend on God in the first place, but they don't recognize Yeah, no, that. you've congealed all the intuitions into that one leg, you know? And it's like, no, no, no. That, it really is the case that libertarian free will might not be true, or at least it's easy to convince people at this point that it might not be true. And so so you've undermined the whole practice. But, but if you ground it in something much more, I don't know, psychologically accurate or, or something that captures human psychology, you'll realize that it's not. It's not all right, and that that leads to sort of the empirical arguments that the it's a pretty robust like the reactive attitudes are pretty robust. Like may, maybe you can convince somebody for like you know in the time that you're interacting with your dad after you've been mad and you kind of suspend it because he has dementia or whatever, um, you know. But but guess what? Probably the next time you see him, if he if he says something right. mean, you'll you'll react the same way. She then makes a separate like so. So Strawson, in some ways, was worried about this, but in other ways, w wasn't because he thought they mm -hmm. may think at some sort of weird theoretical level that. But as soon as somebody treats them badly, they'll go back to resenting them if they're just the normal kind of agent. Right. And he, so, so because essentially in our relationships, those are the the way the attitudes are so deeply ingrained that. It's just very hard to give them up, no matter what your theory tells you. But um, at the level of social policy, she says, this is where these kinds of ideas can really be damaging and destructive. And by, by completely well-intentioned people, the example being criminal justice. All of a sudden, if this kind of idea seeps into our thinking about criminal justice, then this will lead us to a kind of superficial dichotomy between a utilitarian form of punishment or a kind of retributivism that's based on the illusion of free will. So, And I think this is actually an important point. Um, so, so I agree. I'm sympathetic to the view that human beings will never actually like the, the everyday practices of blame won't, won't be touched too much by these, um, by whatever threats to libertarian free will. In fact, I, I want to mention really quickly here, I was just looking up the paper. Uh, Adina Roski's made an argument like this, um, in a trends in cognitive science paper on neuroscientific challenges to free will and responsibility in which she concludes essentially that she, you know, she doesn't think. First of all, it's not a new, it's not a new thing to fret and free will. Um, it's just a different kind of threat. Um, people have been pretty, you know, from from God's foreknowledge to behaviorism and Freudianism all the way to neuroscience. She's like, no, it's pretty robust, right? Newton. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, Eric Helzer, a former grad student of mine and uh, of ours, and and I wrote a, a paper called Stubborn Moralism and Freedom of the Will, where we, we kind of argue the same thing. That basically, like, you know, people, we're just going to treat other people like agents. That's that's just going to happen. But her her point and, is... And when we don't, it won't be because of... <laughs> no, it won't be because of that, yeah, right? Belief right. In it, you yeah. know, even uh, a sufficiently complex android as as the ones in Westworld, which is the whole reason to talk about this. Have you... Has anybody suggested that you watch uh, Westworld? That's yeah, um, that, like some sort of teen drama like <laughs> yeah. but her point that you know 
you don't have to convince seven billion people that free will doesn't exist. You just have to convince some eager lawmakers, and you might actually change the practices of institutions. And that that is, you know, I'm I'm not still not sure that that people would allow this to happen, but it certainly is a much easier route for philosophical ideas to gain ground. Yeah, so she she takes this uh, Royal Transactions Journal issue where the Green and Cohen paper first appeared, along with a bunch of other yeah. papers. They defend a very common free will skeptic line. Again, this is a view that I used to endorse. You can look it up in my dissertation. I it's not all about, about you. Can you just... It is about me. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> suspend, suspend the attitudes, David. Suspend serenity now. <laughs> this, so this is a paper where they essentially say that our our law does is is officially compatibilist in the sense that all it presumes about people is that you need the capacity to reason in order to be morally responsible. Like guilty mind, mens rea, like supposes something that nobody disputes that we have, but that. <laughs> that that's based on a lie because our intuitions are according to green and cohen that you have to have libertarian free will in order to be morally responsible the re- and and being reason responsive is like a proxy for us to thinking that somebody has libertarian free will so right. we don't really care about whether somebody's reason responsive we just take that as a signal that they have libertarian free will and that's why we think that the law is right to hold people who can respond to reasons morally culpable. But once right. we see, once neuroscience shows us that um, there is no such thing as libertarian free will, we will start to realize that nobody deserves punishment for anything, and we will start to punish people according to good old-fashioned utilitarian principles. Right. <clears throat> right. And, you know, to be fair to their paper— um, uh, they they even explicitly say they don't think that neuroscience is actually adding any new information, right. but rather that it will just serve as a good reminder to people that libertarian free will doesn't exist because, you know, because Newtonian mechanics and brain scans. Yeah, it has rhetorical force because yeah. we can see that we're machines. Exactly. Like, this is the kind of impoverished view of punishment that she thinks results from not understanding or taking Strassen's insights seriously. And um, and so I guess we should cut to the the part where she links it to restorative justice, but but she also, um, or at least links it to what change, what sort of what it would really say for, for practices. But she also goes on to criticize the opposite view that is also in that same edition um, that criticizes Green and Cohen for falling prey to the same assumptions, um, for actually buying into this view that libertarian free will is at the heart of all of our moral practices. Um, which, you know, I, I have to say, like, I know it's not going to ch- Some people's minds just won't be changed. I mean, I think we've experienced this. We've talked this to death, you know, with Sam Harris uh, on a three-hour podcast. And and it, it is... And he was just getting just, started. And he was just getting started. And, and some people just won't... They can't escape the intuition that if there is no metaf- sort of metaphysical free will then uh, we just can't blame and punish. But I do, I do think at least she takes a little bit to task. The Even if you believe that, it's unclear that util, a utilitarian-based form of punishment follows. Well, this is um, the good and now view. So she says, yeah. 
she describes that view as, this argues for a criminal justice system that is organized around staunch retributive principles, holding people responsible and blaming them for their actions, even if, in some deeper causal sense, they are determined to do what they do. Goodnow agrees with Green and Cohen that this is effectively how our current penal system is organized, so his policy recommendation is to leave well enough alone. So it's like a strategic on the strategic fiction view of the reactive attitudes, a retributive approach to criminal justice is bound to deliver the best societal outcome overall. So this is like the illusionism view. Yes, it's a fiction, it's an illusion, but don't get rid of it because it's actually leading to the best right. result. So it's a kind of different, it's, it's, it's consequentialism. Don't tell everybody the secret of consequentialism because this yeah. shit will, will stop working because it's not a very good psychological motivator. Um, that's, a dumb, that's a dumb view. It's complete. It's bullshit. I mean, look. I mean, look. Just bite the bullet and say your view requires sort of empirical evidence for what form of punishment or whatever you know, or reward or anything is going to lead to the best outcomes. Whether it is unfair treatment of some people or or widely fair treatment or retributivist you know expressions while we're beating someone to death. Like, it's all an empirical question. Right. And so, you know, just bite the bullet and say that. It may very well be that we have to respect certain, way, you know, ways of doing things because people would be up in arms if we didn't do it. But don't just... Assert. D yeah, don't assert and don't pretend as if you secretly are motivated by consequentialism, but really you just are a fan. Oh, so you of, see him as di disingenuous. I... I see it as strange that you would conclude that everything that is here and in place is the right way to do it. I think that if you took that view seriously, it would require you to really think twice about whether the practices we have are the most effective. Because I think on the face of it, clearly they're not as effective as they could be. I mean, it um, would be a remarkable coincidence, right? It would that, be. That we have and, these fictions exactly. that are in place that are actually like the right fictions to lead to the best possible outcome. I don't know. Like, I haven't read that article, so I don't know what, like, evidence he um, he brings for that, but it's such an enormously complex empirical question yeah, that exactly. I, I, I would be shocked if it's even remotely plausibly it's, supported. Yeah, you're basically saying, like, well, I'm too lazy to engage in that empirical endeavor, so let's keep everything going as is. Um the other thing I'll say finally about this is that I've said this many times, but it just real say it, it really pisses me off that people assume that when you adopt, when you deny libertarian free will, that this somehow means that you're going to open yourself up to the compassion for all human beings. Yeah, it's just it's a crock of shit. It doesn't follow at all. Like it, it doesn't. It, it makes no difference. And in fact, if it motivates you to adopt a utilitarian approach, being a dick to some people who don't deserve it just may be what works. Like, it just maybe what works. <laughs> Bite the goddamn bullet. I, I think, though, there is this sort of view that, and again, I've promoted it. Like, I, I think I was actually fairly good at promoting the, the, the light side, the nice side of 
free will skepticism, you know, like right. I, I, I painted a very rosy picture of it and I still buy at least some of it. But yes, what I don't what I think I underestimated what people like McGear and Michelle Mason and, you know, like this guy, uh, Seth Shabo, my colleague, Justin Coates, in responding to that view, the kind of optimistic, skeptic view that's defended by Dirk Paraboom and. Um, and my early work is if the dark side of taking your early the, work. I'm going <laughs> to the dark side of I'm trying to I'm trying to trigger reactive attitudes. On your part. <laughs> the dark side of taking the objective attitude towards somebody is yeah. the and this kind of disrespect that you're t- treating them. And the idea that you would do that to everybody at all times is something that. Is it's 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 way more radical than I think some of the skeptics fully it's, uh, understand. It is, it is particularly smug, and I don't know if it's just and it's a smugness to it. I guess <laughs> too. It, it almost shows like a disconnect with how human relations actually work. Yeah, as I as I think I said in, in the podcast with Sam, if it undermines resentment for blameworthy actions, it will undermine positive feelings for positive actions as well like that you are not left with you're not left with only love and fucking unicorns and puppies you're left with no justifiable response that that holds another person as worthy of any any of these reactions there's no there's no actually if you look at some of my early earlier work (laughs) my earlier publications you'll see that uh uh, belief in unicorns (laughs) attitudes have been turned off (laughs) (laughs) just uh, let's get to the restorative justice part because i'm not sure what no no, maybe not maybe i don't want to talk about that (laughs) does your early work have anything to say about it what can i cite (laughs) what can i cite (laughs) <laughs> All right, fine. If you really want to talk about restorative justice, I'll, I'll talk a little <laughs> bit about it. But we got to wrap up, dude. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you. You You want to bridge since this is something you want to talk about? Why don't you? Well, well, no, no. I mean, I, it the, seems it seems like it's the part that you were most excited about talking about. But but the the view here is that okay, let's just take let's let's take seriously the view right now that maybe libertarian free will won't it really isn't that that linked either normatively or descriptively to the practice of of sort of moral blame and, and the reactive attitudes um and so what what does it say what would an approach that takes seriously the real sort of psychology behind behind the reactive attitudes and that and what, that what, makes what use of it like that yeah, actually right. like sort of uh capitalizes on some of the goods that it offers Exactly. And the goods here really are, especially, the, you know, what she refers to as the co- co-reactive uh, sort of engagement with another person, that, that you are expressing these reactive attitudes in the hope that it will elicit a kind of response where somebody will engage um, in a discussion about their actions with you and make amends or get mad or whatever, defend themselves. She has um, an, I, I like the term moral scaffolding that she uses. Yeah. It's like the moral scaffolding within a community it um, just further entrenches or reinforces certain norms of how people should be treated, and it does it in a very personal way. So the thing about restorative justice is it allows for these attitudes to, to kind of work their magic within the process in ways that a very technical 
legal trial where the victim might not even be present, isn't given much of a voice, it becomes a fight between district uh, the district attorney and the defense attorney over what are often technicalities. Instead, you bring the victim and the offender together. The offender takes responsibility, admits guilt before taking before taking part so she she gives like a couple of the from this reintegrative shaming experiment uh, that was conducted in Canberra, Australia for five years. Offenders are invited to participate in a conference to determine how their admitted offense should be rectified. The offender can bring a number of supporters, family members, friends to the conference, as can the victim, assuming the victim is willing to take part. Community representatives may also be present, and it's chaired by a police officer. It has a formal purpose, which is to determine what the offender should do to make up for his or her offense. But the crucial byproduct is often that the offender comes to recognize the harm caused to the victim, and the victim comes to appreciate that recognition, and as is often happens, the contrition that the offender displays. Out of these, you know, this five-year experiment that they did there, restorative justice practices, we've talked about this a lot, but greater offender satisfaction, greater victim satisfaction, uh, greater sense that justice was done, and a reduction in recidivism rates that's only been you know replicated further since yeah well, what were the effect sizes uh what were the uh, samples <laughs> but before get so i did want to read a quote um of uh where she ties where she ties in the strassonian view into just the kind of program that, that yeah. you're describing that you summarized but i i yeah, yeah. I, I, I yeah so strassonian approach uh, jibes more nearly with our intuitive understanding of what it means to treat an individual quote-unquote fairly, i.e. is deserving of an appropriate reactive response. Its aim would not be that of brutally imposing punishment simply to achieve maximum deterrent effects, like what Green and Cohen uh, were admitting. Rather, it would strive to treat the offender as an appropriate target of moral address, holding up an ideal of responsible agency to the offender, while at the same time ascribing a capacity to live up to that ideal. In this way, it would treat offenders respectfully, recognizing their capacity for co-reactivity and thereby scaffolding them in their efforts of restitution and reform. Um, so, it's, it's, so I guess, you know, I can see what she's saying. Uh, I, I just don't think that a more sort of impersonal holding of an offender is accountable through our criminal justice system is disrespecting them as agents. I, I think that our formal laws as they are right now, in principle, do treat individuals as agents, except for those cases where they lack agency. That the Strassonian view do, doesn't say either way whether it's better to have face-to-face interactions with the offenders and the, and the victims. Um, or to have an impartial judge make a decision. Um, so it seems like she's just taking a little bit of the Strassonian approach and defending this without much other than... than so, so, okay, let me push back on that. So it, it depends to what extent you buy, but I thought you did buy her view about what the reactive attitudes and these practices of holding responsible are for. And what she says, therefore, is to engage people in these 
these trajectories of reactive exchange get a kind of recommitment on all sides to the moral community. And this is what restorative justice does. It gets people through the criminal justice system doesn't allow for these attitudes to get expressed and be responded to in the direct way. Yeah, uh, I I just I, I think that you know, as society gets more complex and we abstract and form these practices of doling out punishment in a more formal way, I I don't think that an appeal to the way that we used to do it just it, it follows. I mean, it would be one thing, I think, I guess, well, here, and still it do may, it. she might not and be so, wrong, yeah. but what you would have to mount is an argument for why, say, the current justice system is not respecting the, the sort of psychology of, of the, the she, reactors. she's it's 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 just not it's not that it's not respecting the psychology it's just not allowing those trajectories of reactive exchange to take place in the way that restorative justice like in that diagram right where people are actually responding to each other the wronged person offended party and the offender are reacting to each other offender gets reintegrated into the community and the legal system doesn't allow for that to happen give the yeah. it doesn't the opportunity doesn't arise for these kinds of things. i i'm all with the interpersonal sort i of know that's why i would think you would love because I just don't, and we, you know, we could just refer listeners to that. Yeah. I just think that the potential for bad shit and bias and and uh, but, like, disproportionate punishment, all of these things, without formal systems, are really are but, just how a successful are our formal systems that it. Well, what's with what's that? the metric of success? I guess you know. I mean. Do you do you think that it is? Do you think two point three million people deserve to be in jail? Like, well, I mean, that's neither. It's it's <laughs> it's only if they actually did something that's worthy of being imprisoned. If you think that what's happening because of this system is that we are that the you could argue that the laws are unfair, but the procedure by which we determine that somebody is guilty of a crime that's on the books is a different thing. So, but they're so not I think that, unrelated. Like, Maybe not, but this is more uh, this this is a claim about the way in which you go about making restitution, not about whether or not right. So, like, so you're if, big if, on if, evidence. What's your evidence that all these abuses no, and disproportionate no, punishments? I'm not. I'm anytime not making, there's data, it's always says the opposite that it's reduced punishment. When when we don't have institutions that are abstracted from individual interactions, what you get is blood feuds and lynchings what, what like what's your evidence for that claim? that blood feuds and lynchings no, 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 not do not occur anymore well i mean we had a I legal mean, system when lynching was occurring and that it's, our legal system didn't end that but but again we <laughs> there are places that practice there are societies that practice restorative justice so there is a data set for you to look at to find but, this evidence of this abuses is, and it's such a rhetorical unfair move for you to claim that restorative justice is clearly better because of evidence no and when I, I i'm not saying evidence, i'm saying you that your it. suspicion of it is completely unfounded i'm not saying that it's better yeah, i think that fairness and reduction in bias uh 
is worth whatever costs. Would you think so, that our system is currently unbiased towards? No, I think it would be more. But I doesn't but, mean but I don't think it would be more biased. But why? What's the basis for that belief that the that it would be more biased with the restorative system than with the current system? That the restorative system is in some way trying to get back to interpersonal interactions to to deal with punishment. Uh, to me, that's just institutional like the whole point systematic of a racism is, a is often best addressed, right? Contact hypothesis through yeah, personal the contact interaction. Hypothesis has been shown not to work. I mean, <laughs> that's the whole point. Um, it's not enough. Right? It's not it's, enough, it's, but it's a, it's part of it. It's a start. And yeah, I, I don't know. It, like, I I think that there is uh, the reason I get mad about this. I start to resent you is because there is this just automatic assumption with no data, no evidence that all of a sudden that restorative justice is going to lead to like racism and no, bias and disproportionate. The automatic assumption and, is, and there's that literally you, is like, you saying that it will fix stuff. I didn't no say, I, I, I'm just, look, here's this system. It's, I'm not walking around telling people that restorative justice is bullshit. You're walking around telling us that it's going to be. You just do so said much better. that it will lead to disproportionate, in unfair punishments. Yes, that's what you said. What in do you mean? Response you to are your walking around. Claim, you're, are you sitting? In response to your positive claim that restorative justice will fix these problems, which you offered said no it evidence was, for it, at all. I, no. Okay. So remember how this started. It started that I said this is a a natural extension of the Strassonian view of the reactive yeah. attitudes and, and I, blaming and holding responsible i don't and i don't think that it is and i gave reasons and right. then and then but they were bad reasons and i showed you that they were bad reasons <laughs> and you and that's when you start making like wait so, what are my bad reasons why why is the current criminal justice system not not sensitive to the reactive attitudes it's not a. I mean, how many times do I have to say this? It's well, not allowing clearly. for the dynamics of reactive exchanges. That's her whole point. It's not allowing for those little smiley faces, devils, wilted flowers, all those things to. Uh, so your assumption is that you you have to like it requires literal interactions, not just like accusing. Like I think Tamler like made this. Like I am. I don't, I don't metaphorically resolve a fight with my wife. I I, I resolve no, it. No, but you through also our, don't go to court literally. for that, right? But why? Why should I go to court if if you shouldn't? I'm not talking about that. We're talking about the criminal justice system. You want me so, to like every time Jen and I have a fight? No, I yes, don't give a you fuck want like a judge to decide it. No, they, you, God damn it! You're not even listening to what I'm saying. You're the one who brought up the fight with your wife. It has nothing to do with this. I'm talking about in a criminal justice system. How is it not an expression of my reactive attitude to bring a charge against you and let a judge actually listen to your argument? I don't understand how that in any way is disrespecting a reactive attitude. First of all, you don't bring a charge in a criminal justice system. I call the, the state cops. brings a charge. I call the cops. You might I, testify, um, and then. What actually happens is a plea deal between a district attorney and the offender, and you like you're out of it. The offender doesn't know you. The offender doesn't have an opportunity to apologize or to try to make it up to you. Like all those things that like the reactive attitudes yeah, are we, assuming that we people been, can do. That's the whole reason why we get angry at someone is we assume that they can apologize and take action to remedy the wrong that they did to us, and we're but, not allowing that to happen. 
think it, I mean we're treading old ground like the the whole point is like under some conditions I'm allowed to not press charges under other conditions the actions that you committed that were criminal are serious enough and a reflection of your danger to the community at large that the police will arrest you and the state will press charges independent of whether or not you want to so at that point I am that to me is a good thing it doesn't require me to work things out with every criminal right it actually puts puts somebody in charge of determining whether or not somebody's danger to society and I, it, you know what you're like right now you're like anymore. one of those stubborn skeptics free will <laughs> like skeptics early, you early can't talk work. to them like you can't reason with them you can only manage I, uh, them. I can make you the like like I'm ta- I have to take the objective attitude towards you. <laughs> if, it, if only you had good reasons, you wouldn't have to. This is, this is you just keep this in my mind. What you're doing is just jumping up and down every time this comes up, and you're yelling at me that that you shouldn't have to go to court for Jen. Your argument. In with my Jen. mind, you're suspending. <laughs> Like all your beliefs about that you need evidence and empirical data to support your claims, like just not not doesn't apply when it comes to trash. I mean, do you buy the claim? Do you buy the claim that restorative justice is closer to the way in which in which we used to do things and which other smaller scale societies do things? Uh, yes. Okay. So and that like schools I, do things and that. Like th- people do things in their relationships, right. and yeah. So I think the complexity of of society and the scale of society require that people not have to do this for every criminal um, that is engaged in wrongdoing, because they are a danger to all of society. If we lived in small scale societies, I'd be all for this. I just think that that it's unreasonable to think that this is how how things ought to go with everybody. Like if it, so, you know. so, so that's the first thing that you said that makes some sense. So congratulations on that. It could be that our society is just too anonymous and too large and too complicated for. But also note, nobody is suggesting that restorative justice just like that you force victims and you force offenders to get together every time any crime is committed. It's that you offer that opportunity and maybe some incentives, especially on the offender's part, for participating in that process but no like there's no system there's no large country that employs this approach that thinks that it's just a cure-all for everything and should be used in every case Um, in fact almost all of them require consent on the part of both parties yeah, I, that's that's fine and all. I, I I'm only challenging the view that this is a bet like that it would be a better society if everybody consented to do this, which it seems like you're. I I right? don't say that. Like I I think you're probably right that there's a lot of kinds of cases, and maybe a lot a, a, a lot of offenders and maybe a lot of victims where they don't they wouldn't want to do it, and forcing them to do it would be would do more harm than good. So that's the first reasonable thing you've said. So All right. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm I'm not angry. I'm not angry. <laughs> For the All first right. time well, in a while. For people to like at least the previous restorative justice argument we had. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> All right. I have to go. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. I hope you, uh, you know, this we fought at least. We haven't fought yeah, we in a did. while. We did. We, yeah. we were agreeing throughout so much. <laughs> I hope that you uh, get that Christmas tree up. Oh, Tannenbaum. <laughs> oh, Tannenbaum. <laughs> I was trying to do a, 
a, a German. A German accent, yeah. yeah. The